Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. President Joe Biden at his most reassuring after the collapse of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. It's the most significant bank failure in the US since the financial crisis and has set alarm bells ringing. Authorities stepped in quickly to protect depositors, but could the conditions which broke SVB hurt others? Could that be enough to force a rethink at the Federal Reserve? I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are Steve Ellis, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Anna Stubnitska, Global Macroeconomist, and Gita Bal, Global Head of Fixed Income Research. Thank you all for joining me. Hey, Richard. Thank you for having us. Now, Steve, um, we were at a, a client event last week before the news about SVB broke, and you were already talking about looking for cracks in the system. So SVB uh, being shuttered, is this the start of something big? I think um, the warnings I've been making really centred on the fact that the Fed and other central banks have been tightening policy very aggressively through a combination of interest rate hikes and quantitative tightening. And, you know, when that happens, when you start after a period of very subdued interest rates and, and episodes of QE, when you start raising interest rates and tightening monetary conditions, you know, the, you start seeing canaries in the coal mine. You start seeing some collateral damage here. And, and that's the warning I was making. I don't think there's any sort of systemic risk here in the banking system, perhaps we talk about that in a minute. But um, I, I think it's a sign of things to come that when, you know, when you start seeing interest rates rising, um, you know, some, you start seeing some skeletons coming out here and uh, some kind of credit events. Now, there's many areas where you could see, you know, more collateral damage. But I think that's why the Fed and other central banks have to be careful here. Okay, they've got to tread carefully, Gita. It's an important event. We've heard that from Steve. Um, put it into a little bit of context. I mean, what went wrong at SVB? And could it happen elsewhere? I think a lot of things went wrong at SVB. But at its core, what our analyst team is saying is that there was a mismatch between the asset liability uh, management that was taking place at SVB and the business organization that they were running. So effectively, they were set up to fund um, VCs and other kind of high growth companies. Um, They had very fast um, deposit growth over a period of time. They had um, very high customer concentration of those deposits, making them uniquely vulnerable to deposit outflows. But similarly, because of the types of companies that were depositing and the VCs that were depositing with them, if you think about it, how does a normal bank work? They take in deposits and they make loans. Well, SVB couldn't really make as many loans as they needed to during that kind of fast growth stage. And so they invested their money instead. And they weren't marking to market, and they weren't doing um, a number of other things that that we would typically see in, in larger scale banks. So as a consequence, when those deposits flowed out, they were left with this pool of securities that they needed to liquidate, and they had to crystallize losses on on a, a significant amount of treasuries and, and, and other assets. And so I think it is a unique set of circumstances um, around SVB. The one thing that it has also highlighted, though, is as we learned in the financial crisis, banks are by definition um, leveraged entities. And you need confidence in banks to kind of maintain that level of leverage. So we are going to see, you know, 
deposits coming out of other banks. We've seen it in the last few days. We are going to see that confidence knocked. But I would agree with Steve. I don't see a massive systemic risk associated with this. Okay. So how far up the scale of banks is this going to is this going to spread? Because um, in America, that there's a two tier system of how banks are regulated, and that, and it seems to be that the the less regulated ones are the ones that um, are where all the concern is at the moment. The smaller ones, so it's the systemically important ones that where all the attention has been because we were so worried about the uh, after the global financial crisis. Um, has, has the eye been taken off the ball with the smaller banks? Potentially. And regulation obviously um, changed during the Trump administration and the level of scrutiny that was going on. So I think all of that will be looked at once again. And I think we will see um, changes in that stage. But having two tiers of regulation is not unique to the US. Um, In talking to our analyst team, even here in the UK, if you don't want just an oligopoly of a handful of very, very strong banks and no consumer choice and no real competition, you, you would regulate everyone at the same level. But because we're trying to encourage challenger banks into a lot of markets, what you are seeing is even in the UK, we're having challenger banks coming in with a lower touch regulation. And so I don't think lower touch regulation in and of itself necessitates alarm bells ringing in that way. Uh, point made. And um, I, I appreciate your patriotic <laughs> defense of American <laughs> regulation. Um, so let, let's, let's go back to the States, Steve. And if in itself, you know, this isn't the, the sign of trouble to come. Where should we be looking for further cracks? Yeah, I mean, that's the hardest thing is to identify uh, where those cracks could appear from here. And it, and I'm sure they will. There will be collateral damage from, from um, higher interest rates, higher yields. I, I would say that, you know, we're already seeing cracks in things like the auto loan market. Uh, we're seeing cracks in VC, uh, and that obviously came through SVB. We're seeing, um, and we could see potentially uh, further cracks in areas where there hasn't been so much in the way of mark-to-market of um, instruments. And, you know, there's the private markets in particular could could be under scrutiny. Although you know, a large part of private markets are, you know, especially in private debt, is floating rates. So it's going to be more impervious to rising interest rates. So I get it. But so it's hard to actually put your finger exactly where the next cracks are going to happen. Um, you know, you just look at things like the housing market. It's already, you know, going through a huge amount of dislocation. More so when you look at permits and housing starts, more so than 08. I mean, it makes 08 look like a walk in the park. So, the, the, you know, it's just, I think it's going to be a combination of things that, that happen. The one area um, where I do think is kind of vulnerable here is more, you know, when you think about the debt that's been increased in the last few years, um, it's mostly come through public sector through the pu- public um, debt markets um, you know so debt to GDP has been although it's somewhat eroded by inflation in the last year or so the debt to public debt and the servicing of the debt is going up has gone up massively so just the debt servicing costs are, are really eating into budgets and you know the, so I think that's where some of the vulnerabilities lie here in that you know, balance sheet recessions so in, in places like the periphery in Europe, for example, there's just not enough growth to um, be able to, to grow out and to service that debt, particularly with debt servicing costs high. So I'm not quite sure how that spills into markets. I don't think there's a kind of a crisis of confidence here in sovereign debt markets, but I think there's a whole load of, um, it's, like it's going to be a bit like whack-a-mole in a way, 
is finding, you know, there's going to be lots of small fires that, that happen at the same time. Okay, well, let me bring Anna in here. We've mentioned the Fed, that what we're seeing at SVB and some of the other smaller banks is at least in part a reaction to higher interest rates in the US. And as Gita explained, there's this imbalance in their books. What do you think will be the Fed's response? Um, Because they have been on a very determined path to try and stamp out inflation um, and uh, will they take fright at this um, and and stop that policy? Where do you, where do you think we're going? The Fed has um, a dual mandate. It's uh, financial stability uh, and then, of course, inflation and the jobs market. And so from this pers- perspective, we think that they will try to separate these two areas and separate the tools for dealing uh, with uh, financial market stress and the tools for dealing with the strength in the economy. Because we are seeing this stress uh, against very, a backdrop of very robust economic activity. Inflation is still strong um, and uh, the, the labor market is exceptionally tight. So we think that the Fed is likely to continue raising rates and to send the signal that they have confidence in their own tools and they have confidence in the financial system. Uh, so far, they have acted fast. They have um, uh, introduced um, a new facility, the bank term funding program. Uh, and this is one of the measures that they, they can demonstrate that they have taken. Uh, and if anything, we think if they decide that it's time to pause the hiking cycle. This will send a message that there might be more and the Fed might be seeing something else that, that the markets are not seeing. So we think that they need to project the confidence. They need to continue at a slower pace, so 25 basis points. Uh, but we don't think, at least at this point, that they're likely to stop. So it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? There's all the signalling that a central bank has to do. It's got to show it means business in terms of inflation. But Steve, if I come to you, um, markets seem to have decided something quite different, that the the shape of the yield curve, the the, the predictions that um, traders are making as far as um, the Federal Reserve um, are markedly different in just a few days. Yeah, that's right. The, the markets moved very quickly to price in pretty aggressive rate cuts, particularly in 2024. And you think back to a week ago, the market was already pricing in, if you like, um, a token um, easing at the start of next year, right? So that was the pivot. And, and I would say at the time that it wasn't necessarily an explicit pricing in. It was just there was a probability of some kind of credit events. And here we go, SVB has happened. And so, the, um, whereas, and so therefore, the market was was kind of thinking there's a risk of something happening, but we don't quite know exactly when it's going to happen or, or what it could be. And so there's always that probability. That's why it was implying that um, token rate cut into the start of next year. Now fast forward a week and markets are hell-bent and you know, already explicitly pricing in very aggressive cuts. So Fed Fund's target rate now is 475. We've still got you know, a 50% probability of another hike of 25 basis points um, at the March or May meeting. And thereafter, we have an explicit rate cut um, priced in uh, by July, so down to 425. And then by the end of the year, around, you know, 4-ish, 4.15 or so, right? And then 
for next year, there's about 100 basis points of cuts priced in. I hear what Anna's saying, that um, the Fed needs to show confidence. They need to push on and, you know, and, and address the, the inflation risk here. But at the same time, uh, they cannot be too dogmatic about this, that there's a chance that they've already gone perhaps too far in tightening monetary conditions. And you're seeing a collapse in the monetary base. And M2 is the most negative it's been um, in 60 years. You know, there's the, the so from the monetary side, you're already seeing very strong um, contraction there. And then my concern is that if the, if the Fed are just, you know, well, if they are too dogmatic about it and they continue with quantitative tightening of $95 billion a month on top of, you know, more progressive rate hikes, that they really could tip us over the edge here. So I think they have to be a bit practical about it. So Anna, um, coming back to you, um, this is one of the the tricky things for the Fed, isn't it? They um, are so loudly um, talking about, obviously, inflation, but also the labour market is such an important indicator for them. Um, And yet there are concerns that they're looking in the rearview mirror, that it takes a long time for those indicators in the real world to come through. Um, Whereas, as Steve points out, you've got lots of warning lights on different aspects of, um, of the economy. When do you think the Fed might change its tag? The Fed uh, uh, is in a data-dependent mode, and so uh, this is the reaction function that they have communicated. Um, uh, everyone knows that they're focusing on the data that is lagging. Um, everyone knows that they are not uh, perhaps properly assessing the lags in the transmission mechanism, or they are unable to properly assess the lags because we have so many uh, distortions in the system, uh, particularly those excesses from uh, the COVID times. Um, they are following the data. And I think uh, when they see evidence that inflation is declining and this decline is sustainable, uh, they might start recalibrating policy. I do agree with Steve that we already have a lot of tightening in the system and a number of indicators uh, that we have constructed, uh, they show that this tightening um, is very strong. It, in fact, is the second strongest since the 1980s. And uh, the financial conditions have tightened on a number of measures. Um, but it's, again, happening at the time where we see this very strong labor market uh, and very little uh, sign that the pressures are easing. And this leaves very little room for complete policy reversal right now. Not yet. Um, jam tomorrow. Um, let me come to, um, to Gita, because um, what is the information that the analysts that, that you work with, what are they picking up um, from the companies that they talk to? Because uh, we run the analyst survey every month. But on inflation specifically, what is the Fidelity Analyst Survey telling us at the moment? So the Fidelity Analyst Survey is telling us globally that inflation is has peaked, but it remains um, quite sticky. And if we break down the inflation um, expectations that our analysts have um, for corporations by um, labor and non-labor costs, Across all uh, regions and across all sectors, labor costs are expected to continue to increase. So that includes our North American um, analysts are saying we still expect high um, labor costs. On the non-labor side, we've 
definitely seen a more marked decline in um, analyst views of of non-labor costs. Um, some of the supply chain challenges and things like that are, are, are clearly out of the system. But if we dig into the numbers on a regional and on a sectoral basis, what we're finding is actually the people who are most optimistic about declining non-labor costs are analysts based in China. And they're really, really driving that. Um, there are some industrial sectors as well. But our North American analysts um, are, are continue to believe that even non-labor costs will remain quite sticky. Off the peaks, very clearly. But they are not saying six months out we're going to see um, a, a sharp decline at this stage. Um, the other thing that I'd just like to add, if it's, it's helpful, is we also ask on a quarterly basis, what are your expectations for workforce size for, um, for your companies? And, and, and generally speaking, um, many parts of the world are, are expecting higher uh, workforce size um, down the road. And, and I would say on the North American side, it is slightly negative when we look 12 months out into the future. So maybe that will be a leading indicator over time of what will happen to these costs, but it's really, really marginal at this stage. Possibly a bit too soon to, yeah. to call a trend. Um, and just what st- sticking with the survey, um, what about the general optimism amongst the companies that the analysts cover? Because, um, what you know, Given all this uncertainty around at the moment, and um, obviously the survey, the latest survey was um, conducted before um, any of the the, uh, the worries about SVB. But um, just what's the what's the general tenor um, of optimism? And let's let's start with the US. We titled the end of our annual survey last year "Light at the End of the Tunnel" because people were saying that while things were pretty poor in a number of regions and a number of sectors, um, that they really looked for the end of 2023 to be a, a more positive uh, pro-growth stage. Um, as you said, our management survey was conducted pre-SVB, so um, how much sentiment has changed on the basis of the last few days, um, it's it's unclear. Um, but what I would say is that management sentiment has improved meaningfully um, around the world and turned positive on an aggregate basis globally in February. And our leading indicators turned positive in March. So a really positive note there. A little bit less positive on the management sentiment in the US. We're, we're still marginally negative, And that's kind of down from a February result where people were marginally positive. So a little bit less conviction there on how positive management teams are. Our leading indicators in North America right now are, are still negative. And so I think um, I think while the overall global sentiment is clearly improving, our colleagues in North America are not quite so optimistic. Okay, but that's still not um, a raging recession, Anna, which is what an awful lot of uh, indicators are suggesting we should be expecting in the U.S., Indeed. And um, uh, we remain in in the hard landing camp. And I think uh, 12 months from here, we are not seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And maybe it's a horizon uh, difference in a way, because indeed, we came out of this winter. Uh, we started the year on an optimistic tone. We saw uh, improvement in consumer confidence across the board. We're, we're seeing improvement in business confidence across the board. Uh, of course, a lot of it is coming from China, but also across the developed world because winter was warmer than expected, because the worst growth fears did not materialize 
materialize. So we we see it as a temporary improvement in sentiment. Um, and again, uh, as I mentioned, those excesses, COVID-related excesses, are still driving the strength of in consumer demand. So this is temporary. However, again, given all the tightening that's already in the system and potentially more tightening to come, uh, that transmission mechanism will start working and the tightening will start affecting the real economy. Uh, and again, we talked about the cracks. Indeed, these are the first signs. These are the warning shots that there is tightening um, and the growth damage will come. Therefore, we think that recession is still a very likely scenario. We have been expecting a cyclical recession, so a relatively mild recession where the unemployment rate might increase by perhaps two to three percentage points. But actually, the longer we wait and uh, the more that recession timeline is pushed out into 2024, the higher the probability is that recession might be deeper, what we call a balance sheet recession, because we do have uh, the maturity walls uh, much higher from 2024 onwards. That's when loans have to be refinanced. Sorry for interrupting you, but um, Steve, I could see you nodding there that regardless of whether the Fed increases rates uh, more or not, you're pretty bearish, aren't you? You think we're heading uh, for a recession? Yeah, I totally agree with Anna on this. I think there's going to be lagged effects, as we all know. Um, But I think that the strongest evidence that we're heading towards a you know deeper recession than most people think, and what's priced in right now, is you look at look at um, credit conditions. So you look at senior loan officer survey, and you look at um, that when you correlate that with, for example, investment grade or high yield spreads. You know we're seeing a very tight, uh, strong tightening in in that um, senior loan officer survey. Credit conditions are tightening. And yet that's not totally reflected yet in uh, in spreads, particularly in high yield spreads. So there's a potential here that it's already in the pipeline. It's kind of baked in that the Fed are pushing on, raising interest rates here and the lagged effects are, you know, it's or we're going to see a, you know, these things can, can suddenly happen, right? You can suddenly get a, a drying up of credit um, and it just takes an event like SVB to, for that to happen and suddenly you get a kind of stop-go cycle. But what I, I totally agree with Anna in the sense that the more prolonged this is, the more pushed out that the recession um, starts in 2024, uh, and particularly if the Fed keep going, that you start getting concerns about a balance sheet recession. Let's change the tone completely, because Gita already mentioned China and um, optimism amongst our analysts there. Its economy is reopening. Uh, messaging from the recent government meetings have been very supportive of a pro-growth agenda. Um, a little bit earlier, I spoke to our Asia economist, uh, Pi Chan Liu, who's based in Singapore. But she's recently returned from a research trip to Beijing. And she and others from Fidelity's investment team have been getting a view firsthand of what the economy looks like on the ground. China is reopening now after three years of lockdowns. Tell me about the uh, the scale of the recovery in China. What, what what did you see on your trip? So generally speaking, as we get closer to Beijing, people are more optimistic about the recovery. I've met with uh, the, the banks, the asset management, the investors, uh, the regulators, and some of the business people on the ground as well. The general sentiment is that China's back. Or, uh, in terms of 
business activities, consumer activities, it's visibly much more lively in Beijing, even more so than I would have previously expected before I started the trip. And also the business sentiment is recovering as well. Those concerns on regulatory changes in 2021, those concerns on COVID uh, lockdowns were all seem to be somewhat forgotten by the business on the ground. Really? Everyone's looking forward, <laughs> looking forward to new start and how they could possibly be restarting the economy on a stronger footing. Gosh, that could not be more different to many other parts of the uh, the world at the moment. So it's good to hear about that that sense of optimism. I want to um, go back to something you said right at the beginning, that the closer you got to Beijing, the more optimistic people were. Is that just a sentiment thing or is that actual business activity is is better? And, and why is Beijing the, uh, the, the centre of this activity then? Well, I, think, I guess it's a mix of both. I will start from the sentiment change. Uh, I'm based in Singapore. So offshore here, we are still more skeptical about how the regulatory change has been imposed any of the scarring effect on the business on the ground. As I move to Hong Kong, people are slightly more confident about, you know, China's not going to return to 2021 style of regulatory crackdowns or the 2022 style of COVID lockdowns. But they can't completely rule out the possibility of any regulatory or policy uncertainties that might be affecting growth outlooks. Going into Beijing, those concerns were completely behind us. So it gave us a very clear sentiment that the Beijing, the policymakers have been returning to pro-growth pragmatism after the COVID reopening. So that's recovery within the Chinese context. But is this enough to give the rest of the world a lift as well? Is this growth going to spread beyond China's borders um, or is it actually still contained? Um, uh, it's not going to be something, you know, a, a great big boon that will that will ripple around the rest of the world. I think this is going to be very interesting for us to look forward to, uh, given the modest growth target we have seen of around 5% this year and the focus more on domestically driven growth outlook, I would expect China's growth outlook to be more of a modest, stable recovery, which will still contribute to global growth uh, based on its cyclical upswing, but to a less extent compared to those commodity bazookas we have seen in the early 2010s. So we expect a recovery in the shape of a consumption-led and to some extent manufacturing investments-led growth rebound, where we probably are still going to see a much more modest recovery in the property sector. To some extent, it benefits the commodity exporters, but to a less uh, extent compared to the early 2010s. And what about inflation? Because um, as uh, China recovers, um, there is uh, there is some additional uh, inflation appearing there. Is it going to be quite the same um, beast that needs to be tamed, as we've seen in other economies that um, reopened before China? I think we could start from the inflation target, which was maintained at 3% uh, on the headline CPI target. So I think that target itself is reflecting China's more nuanced attitude towards inflationary pressures. Definitely, we're going to observe more core inflation rebound on the back of a recovery from the consumer sector and services sector. But on aggregate, we're probably going to see energy prices, food prices more on the easing trend, which is supportive of a much more a, a much milder rebound in headline inflation. 
And does that mean that China won't be exporting inflation to the rest of the world, which has also been a concern? Because for decades, China was exporting disinflationary trends. What do you expect now um, as China itself um, is, a, is a growing and maturing economy? I think the impact of uh, inflation from China to the global uh, markets is twofold. On one hand, we're probably going to see the PPI's transmission to the global uh, manufacturing products to still reflect deflationary trend as commodities energy products are uh, facing prices easing uh, compared to what we have seen in the supply shortage era in the 2010s, uh, in the 2021 and 2022. So on that uh, account, I think from a goods exports perspective, China is still going to be maintaining that deflationary trend. But on the other hand, we are probably going to see Chinese consumer-driven recovery, which could be perhaps reflected on service outbound flows, reflected in tourism, higher demand for services and uh, goods from abroad. And those could potentially uh, drive up services inflation in countries that's been popular uh, for Chinese tourists. So on some of the regions, we might be seeing idiosyncratic inflationary pressures from China's reopening. I'm interested in the sense of scale around this. Is this something that people need to be worried about? Um, or is this just something that you would notice at the margin? I think just based on China's impact on global inflation, it will still be a tailwind to global inflationary pictures. And we're still looking more closely to what happens in the developed countries for the inflationary trend broadly. Chan Liu speaking to me a little bit earlier. Now, Anna, which regions do you expect to benefit most from this reopening of China's economy? We think it's mostly a local story, a regional story. Um, and uh, we have seen that already uh, to some extent, uh, again, in consumer confidence and business confidence. Um, I do think that uh, perhaps some of the improvement in indicators such as new export orders uh, that we have observed in Europe might also be related uh, to China. But mainly, um, it is the region that will benefit. So China itself uh, and uh, emerging Asia. We don't think that there will be enough growth um, uh, stimulus uh, and not enough inflation uh, bounds to benefit or to affect um, growth prospects elsewhere and not enough, not sufficient to offset uh, this slowdown and potential recession that we are expecting in the developed world. So from an investing point of view, um, a local story there. While we're on the optimistic bits, um, Gita, there's one more finding from the quarterly survey um, that was uh, pretty rosy about not just China, but um, the, the those areas around investment. Yeah, so we ask our analysts on a quarterly basis about their view of CapEx in their sectors. And, and really, across sectors, across regions, we are seeing corporates willing to invest and, and in many cases willing to invest at a greater rate than they have been in, in recent quarters. So, so also quite a positive picture on that, that CapEx side. Quite a, quite a divide in the world. Well, we're almost at the end of this recording, but not before we play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake and what would you drop like a hot potato? Steve, let's start with you. The point I've been making is that I think you need to 
play it safe here. I think you need to be quite defensive. And that means that um, you, you need to take shelter more in the investment grade type of, up in quality type of, um, of instruments. And, and the reason being is that, you know, markets, as we know, are discounting mechanisms. And it's all about what's being priced in here, about recession risk. And, and you know, when I look at spreads in investment grade versus high yield, and, you know, we have mentioned before about the analysis that we've done in high yield uh, spreads, which, by the way, you know, have widened quite considerably the last few days. But if we take U.S. high yield as an example, spreads are at 500 basis points. Now, if you make a few assumptions here and you, you know, adjust for the quality, the up in quality that the index has seen in the last five years or so, even taking that into consideration, um, those spreads are still not giving, not giving you enough protection for recession risks. So you've got... Um, you know, they, they, when you look at the kind of default count that is priced into that um, that spread of 500 basis points, it's just not giving you enough protection here. Whereas an investment grade, you are. And the all-in yield that you get in, for example, dollar IG, you know, it's above two, uh, sorry, above 5% or so. I, I just don't think you can go wrong there. That would be, uh, you, you have that, that um, duration exposure for events like, you know, we've seen in the last few days. Um, you've got that risk premium embedded into those spreads in U.S. investment grade, which are currently 160 basis points. So, so don't take any risk. Keep, keep very defensive this year. All right. So that's your hot cake. Investment grade is your hot cake. What about your hot potato? I think the, uh, the, the thing I'm most concerned about, over, and it's, it's hard to know what the time frame is going to be here, but I think the dollar is going to be a casualty as a result of potentially the Fed unwinding and, and reversing course here and maybe even having to cut rates pretty aggressively next year. And interestingly, what, when you look at the ECB and what's priced into that curve, you know, you've got still a terminal rate of 3.4%. So here we are at 25 now. Market is not saying that the ECB are going to backtrack here, and it's a pretty static profile for the next year or so. In other words, no ECB rate cuts. Now, whether that's going to happen or not, I, don't, I, I doubt very much. But I can see a situation here where the dollar does come under pressure as those interest rate differentials um, a lesson in, in favor of the dollar, but also it has to finance a very large twin deficit. So I think the dollar would be my, my hot potato. Okay, Anna, what about you? What are your hot cakes? I just want to talk about um, the multi-asset perspective, how we think about it from a multi-asset perspective. And we remain very cautious. Um, we are underweight risk assets, so equities credit, Yes, there are some uh, allocations within that, of course. But overall, underweight risk assets and overweight cash. Cash is actually yielding or might be yielding 5%. So my uh, hot cake is cash and hot potato is risk assets. Um, And finally, Gita, what about your hot cakes and hot potatoes? Well, I had the great fortune of doing uh, this podcast with you last month, Richard, and I'm going to keep the same hot cake and the same hot potato. So my hot cake is I I agree with Steve on investment grade, but I'm going to prefer euro denominated investment grade in this market. I think it's offering very attractive returns on a on a multi-year basis. Uh, And my hot potato is going to continue to be I think we need to focus more on the old credit skills of looking at governance. And I think when we're talking about SVB, there was a lot that we could have seen there. So I would look at anything where you don't have confidence in the governance of a company and drop that like a hot potato. 
Ouch, there it goes. Thank you very much indeed. That's all we've got time for. So my thanks to Steve and Angita for joining me in the studio, uh, for Pichan Liu uh, in Singapore, and of course, thank you for listening. We've got lots more analysis of SVB and the related fallout. Uh, it's on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. The producer today was Holly Eastman with technical support from Canon Blitz. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.